2, but we're just going to look at Acts 28 briefly just to uh, get the rest of the story, not the end of the story, but at least the rest of the story as Luke tells us. But I want to take us to um, Acts 27, Acts 26, excuse me, Acts 26 um, for this last, the, the bulk of this last session. As I mentioned in the previous session, uh, reminding you that uh, Jesus had commissioned Saul to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Uh, interestingly, this particular text uh, illustrates Paul bearing his, uh, the name of Jesus before kings and the children of Israel. In a sense, King Agrippa II, who is the, uh, the audience, the primary audience of this message, is uh, ultimately is a descendant of uh, Herod the Great, who was an Idumean, an Edomite, uh, and yet now for several generations this family has been ruling the people of Israel. And Agrippa II in particular, uh, as Paul acknowledges, as, as we'll read here, uh, was uh, a real student of uh, the the scriptures, a real student of the customs of the of the Jews. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't content uh, like his. I think it was great grandfather or great grandfather. I, I can't remember the generations right now. But Herod the Great. He wasn't content just to be named king of the Jews by Julius Caesar, as uh, as Herod the Great had been. He really wanted to rule the Jewish people wisely and well, and therefore to understand their customs. And so Paul feels, as you can tell, as I will show you, as we will hear, actually, Paul feels that he can build on and assume a good knowledge of God's revelation to Israel in the Old Testament in the person of Herod Agrippa II as well. Let me just set a word of context before we actually get into this. Since Acts 17, in the last 15 minutes, uh, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, A lot has happened since then. He's collected up an offering from among the Gentile churches to relieve the poor in the Jerusalem church. We have references to that offering in uh, Corinthians and other uh, Pauline letters um, where he's he's, uh, concerned to solidify in a very concrete, demonstrable way, the unity of the body of Christ across the Jew-Gentile distinction, not only in that the grace that was first brought to Israel is now preached to the Gentiles and they're welcomed in, but that the wealth of the Gentiles is also uh, going to serve the uh, the needs of uh, needy brothers and sisters uh, who are Jewish Christians. Paul writes about this at the end of Romans uh, when he talks about his plans. He wants to get to Italy going west when he's in Corinth, but instead he's going to go east first uh, to bring that, that offering, which he sees as so significant. While he's in Jerusalem, after he's reported on all the great things that the Lord has been doing among the Gentiles, uh, he goes uh, into the temple courts. Uh, a mob mobs him, accusing him of taking an uncircumcised Gentile beyond the wall, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. Paul would not have done that, although that wall was, in a sense, null and void. Paul would still observe those, those, uh, those uh, conventions. But he's falsely accused. And interestingly, he's taken into protective custody by the Roman military uh, at that point. Uh, by this point, Rome actually has 
a military garrison that looks down onto the temple courts called the Fortress Antonia, named in honor of Mark Antony. Um, and so that fortress is a military outpost because usually when trouble starts in Judea, the Romans had learned, it usually starts in the temple courts. So we might as well just have the, you know, have the police department right there. Paul's taken into protective custody and uh, the military people are, don't know why he's the center of so much trouble. So uh, in order to... Uh, get the truth out of him, they start to beat him, and Paul says, uh, by the way, is it uh, really legal to whip a Roman citizen without a trial? And suddenly the military officer is terrified, because he knows that's not legal, and, uh, but he doesn't know quite what to do with Paul. A series of hearings and so on, various governors uh, who dither, I guess you could say, who don't really, that there's no really uh, viable charge against Paul, and yet they won't release him. Uh, and finally, Paul is forced, uh, because they want to take him back. That Now they've moved him out to the coast, to Caesarea, where Cornelius had been posted. I don't know where Cornelius is here, but anyway, out to the coast, and the, uh, partly for his own safety, because there were assassination plots afoot. They, the governor, the second governor to hear his case, threatens to bring him back to Jerusalem for trial, and Paul knows if he does that, he'll never get back to Jerusalem. Uh, because there's a group that have sworn to fast, to not eat until they've assassinated Paul. And so at that point, he appeals to Caesar, uh, invoking his right as a citizen of Rome. Uh, and, uh, but now the problem is, if he's appealing to Caesar, he must be appealing some sort of judicial problem that is stewing around him, and the governor can't, doesn't know what it is. And uh, he can't quite understand why the Jewish leaders are so against Paul, and, uh, and yet he's bound to send Paul to Rome now to have a hearing before Caesar, and he's got to write something down to accompany Paul, and that's why he brings in King Agrippa II, because he knows that Agrippa is an expert in matters Jewish and understands Jewish law and custom, and so... That's why Agrippa is called in as a kind of a consultant. It's not really a formal trial. It's more a hearing so that Agrippa can advise uh, the, uh, um, the governor Festus about what to put in this document that would accompany Paul. Well, Paul sees it very differently. In a certain sense, even though this is not a trial, people might think that Paul is the defendant in this case. Paul sees it completely differently. He sees this as an opportunity to press the claims of Jesus on somebody who knew the prophetic scriptures so well that once Paul presents who Jesus is, Agrippa just ought to immediately, if he has the eyes to see and the ears to hear, immediately embrace the gospel. And so Paul turns what you would have thought was a kind of a defense speech into this marvelous, apologetic, without apology, uh, this advocacy of the message of Christ. Well, listen to it. I'm actually going to read all of chapter 26. Um, I figure if you're so stalwart to last to this last session, you can uh, enjoy a longer reading of Scripture. We need to hear the whole text. 26 verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews 
especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known to all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that's the Roman governor, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, 
but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, she's the king's sister, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, thus far the reading of God's word. That's not the end of the story, of course, but uh, that's the text that we'll focus on in these, in these moments. I've already mentioned Agrippa's um, expertise in matters Jewish. He is an informed audience, as Paul refers to at the beginning of his speech. Uh, Paul is, is not flattering in a false way, but he is sincerely expressing his confidence that, uh, that the king will give him a fair hearing and a knowledgeable hearing. Uh, actually, this is a mark of skilled Hellenistic oratory. Uh, Luke has given us an earlier example of that in one of the accusers of Paul, Tertullus, who was appointed by the Sanhedrin to speak to Felix back in chapter 24. Now there it was all flattery just to butter up the judge. Uh, here Paul is not flattering. He's talking about the reality of Agrippa's knowledge. And so he says, I'm confident that you're going to give me a fair hearing and a well-informed hearing. And then as you hear, as you heard, he goes again into his own history, wants to emphasize in these next section two things, basically. One, what, what he emphasizes is both the continuity and the discontinuity between the man he was before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and the man he is today. First, he emphasizes continuity. He says, I'm simply preaching what I and all of my people have always been hoping for, and that is the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul knows full well that there is a party within first century Judaism that denies the resurrection of the dead, but his own party, the Pharisees, affirmed that God would raise the dead in the last day, at the day of judgment, at the end of the age. Earlier, and that's a fun piece, but we can't go back to it, when Paul is brought to, to the hearing before the Sanhedrin and he knows that the, that, that the Sadducees are the, the, the controlling party of the temple, but the Pharisees have the confidence of the people, uh, Paul, in the midst of that hearing, simply says, Brothers, fellow Pharisees, they've called me to account here because I believe in the resurrection from the dead and the whole thing dissolves into a quibble between Sadducees and Pharisees over whether there's resurrection of the dead or not. And they, they, you know, the whole thing is in chaos. That's the verse that we sometimes quote uh, at the end of our general assemblies, OP and PCA, because it talks about the whole assembly being in an uproar and, and one saying one thing and one saying another and nobody can figuring out what's really being said. But that's not what it's originally about, you see. It's not about our Presbyterian assemblies. It's about the chaos here. So Paul says, our people have hoped in the resurrection. I still hope in the resurrection. In fact, my hope has been brought to fulfillment because I've seen in Jesus the first fruit of the resurrection. There's great continuity between who I am now and what I'm preaching now and what I hoped for as a child and as a young person and as a young adult trained in the law of God and in the hope of Israel. 
On the other hand, there is great continuity. I will admit that. Before, I wanted to eradicate the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And you see, he goes into probably even more detail here than Luke gave us earlier uh, when he's describing the persecution that Paul instigated in Acts 8 leading into Acts 9 when Paul was converted. About Paul arresting people and casting his vote for the condemnation of those who belong to Jesus. Paul wants Agrippa to recognize that something radical had to have happened to change Paul from the man that he was into the man that he now is, the man who hated the name of Jesus to now the man who preaches the name of Jesus as God's Messiah who must suffer and be glorified in resurrection glory. So Paul says in some detail who he was before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. And then in verse 12, he narrates for us again, this is the third time, we skipped the second in chapter 22 for the crowds in the Jerusalem temple, but this is the third time we've read this account of Paul being confronted. Some different details complementary, supplementary details added in here, particularly in terms of, again, the emphasis on the fact that this was an objective revelation. Everybody traveling with Paul not only saw the light, but were knocked off their horses, off their mounts by the light and fell to the ground. Yet the content of the revelation comes only to Saul at this point. But the point that he now especially emphasizes is that Jesus did give him a clue on the road to Damascus that would be elaborated when Ananias met with him of his mission. I have appeared to you for this purpose, this is verse 16, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. You've received revelation from me on this road to Damascus. That's not the last time I'm going to be revealing things to you in a very special, extraordinary way. Servant and witness. Those terms that we've seen pulled out of Isaiah. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf but the witness that I send? But I will heal blind eyes. I will heal deaf ears so that those who have witnessed my saving power can be faithful eyewitnesses to my power, to the resurrection, as Paul is appointed as one born out of due course, out of due time, as a, resur- as a witness to the resurrection of Christ. Notice the comprehensiveness of the salvation that Paul is called to bring. Comprehensive in terms of the blessings that he preaches. Verses 18, well, really it's almost all in verse 18, packed into that one verse. The blessing of illumination, taking darkened, blind hearts and eyes and enabling them to see, opening their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. The blessing of liberation from the power of Satan to God, calling the Gentiles out of their service in which they may have thought they were pursuing liberty, but they were really serving Satan as his slaves now being really set free to serve the living God in whose service is perfect freedom. So liberation, illumination, liberation, forgiveness, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins 
through the death of Jesus in our place, and inheritance, that they may receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sight to blind eyes, deliverance from Satan's lethal power to God's life-giving rule. I've given you some references to Paul's letters there. It all fits so beautifully, but I'm not going to take the time to read all those passages. But it's wonderful to compare this commission that Jesus gives to Paul with what Paul actually does as we see it reflected in his epistles. Forgiveness of sins, this wonderful liberation from the liability to judgment and condemnation and the penalty of our sin through the, because of the wrath of God and our uh, justly deserving His wrath forever, but to be forgiven of sins, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in, in Romans 5, and inheritance. The gospel, through the gospel, God gives these outsiders, the Gentiles, who had no claim to the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, disinherited drifters who deserve exile, now God gives them an inheritance, a place among those who are sanctified, a home of unimaginable comfort and of impregnable security, a home that will never be destroyed. We're all homesick. That's what makes weeks like this so sweet, because they're tastes of home. And that's what makes the Lord's Day so sweet. Because those are tastes of home too as we gather with God's people. But they're only tastes. They're only a touch that evoke our longing for the ultimate radical homecoming of the people of God. Um, I've mentioned that our kids are scattered here, there, and everywhere. Asia and various states in the South another foreign country. And um, that we're looking forward for, to, a, to a family reunion gathering. I don't know if I mentioned this to everybody, but the second week in February, we're going to gather in the Florida Panhandle uh, at a home we've never seen. But the owner tells me that it's been newly renovated. Hello? What did I say? February. July. Whatever month it is. I told Leonard. I'm glad I told somebody. July. Second week in July. Right around the corner. Actually, if it were February, it would be safer, cooler, and probably no hurricanes. But in the middle of July, it's uh, anybody's guess. Uh, but anyway, we're looking forward to that. But you know, in a certain sense, we get there on July 9th, and on July 16th, we all leave, and I'm already dreading July 16th. I'm just, I can feel that kind of emptiness that I felt every time we dropped one of our kids off at college for the first time, and every time we have a kind of wild and wacky week with either one or two of their families under our much too small roof, and, and there's, there, when they all go home, there is a tiny sigh of relief. Whew. But at the same time, there's this sense of longing. We want them there with us all the time because we're made for a home that doesn't have to have a parting to it, that doesn't have to have a goodbye. And Paul says, my commission from Jesus is to take homeless people, Gentiles, and preach to them the good news of God's grace so that God brings them into His family so they have the hope of an inheritance, a place 
with the saints among those who are sanctified, an inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade, that will be, is now reserved in heaven for us, uh, but as we are protected on earth, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, but ultimately that will be the new heavens and the new earth. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful commission given to Saul of Tarsus, that once enemy of Christ, to be able to preach to the Gentiles that they may become family members of God and can expect that homecoming. And of course, as Paul emphasizes, it's all secured to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in these next verses, 19 through 23, I was obedient. I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. I began to preach. I began to preach to our own people, to the Jewish people. I began to preach to the Gentiles. I'm still preaching with the help of God. And I'm just saying what the prophets have always said, starting from Moses, straight on through. Think of the echo there of Luke 24. Jesus meets his disciples on the road to Emmaus, later on in the upper room. And he says, now remember what Moses said, that Christ must suffer and enter into his glory. Paul says, that's what I'm preaching, that Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he proclaims light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus proclaims light through his servants, through Paul, through Peter, through Stephen, through us. Jesus is the light bringer. Jesus is the one who preaches and brings light and salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, this is too much for the Roman governor. He thinks, this guy is nuts. So Festus, who is really supposed to be the quiet partner here, Agrippa is supposed to be the one who's listening and weighing and advising the governor, but Festus blurts out, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you to mania. That's actually the Greek word, mania, and we get comes right across into English. You're a maniac, Paul. What's the matter with you? And Paul just says, I'm not. The king knows what I'm talking about. The king knows the prophets. The king, you believe the prophets, don't you, King Agrippa? And now Agrippa's on the spot. I, this is great, you know. Who's the defendant here anyway? You know, Paul, you're supposed to answer for yourself, and then, you know, we'll make a decision. No, Paul said, no, no, Agrippa, you're the one that's on the hot seat. You believe the prophets, right? I'm going to press you for a verdict. Paul is kind of indifferent about the verdict with respect to himself, but he cares deeply about the verdict that Agrippa will render with respect to Jesus. You believe the prophets. How can you help but believe in Jesus of whom the prophets spoke? And now Agrippa is on the defensive. And... uh, The Greek has no punctuation marks, so we don't know whether this is a question or kind of an ironic comment, and it's rendered in different ways. The ESV, I think, is probably right to render it as a kind of a sarcastic question. Are you going to make me a Christian in this short a time, Paul? Uh, But in any case, the point is he's trying to back off. He's backpedaling now. Too soon. Too much. Really, Paul, what are you thinking of? And he quickly, as you see, draws it to a close but not before Paul gets one more shot in. You're going to try to make me a Christian this briefly? And Paul simply says, hey, no matter how long it takes, short or long, I don't care. But my longing is that not only you, great King Agrippa, but everybody who's been listening to us here would be as I am, that is a believer in Jesus with the hope of the resurrection, 
with the assurance of the forgiveness of sins, with eyes wide open to the glory of God, with an inheritance in that homeland for which every human heart hungers and longs. I wish you were all like me. Except the change, of course. I don't want you all in chains, but I want you to have the hope and the joy that I have. What happened as a result of that day in the lives of those who heard? Good question to ask when we get to glory, because Luke doesn't chose to tell us at this point. Agrippa and apparently Festus agree to, you know, Agrippa gets up at this point, interview over, audience done, this is it. Uh, he doesn't want to hear anything more from Paul, but he is convinced that Paul has done nothing worthy of judgment. And this is one of several points at which lower Roman officers and officials have rendered a verdict that the gospel is not a threat to the political stability of the Roman order. Uh, Of course, we know that the gospel is a threat to the Roman order from the standpoint of its deification of Rome and of Caesar, but not to the order of the empire. In fact, as we've seen all the way through the book of Acts, when there's civil turmoil around the gospel, it's the enemies of the gospel that have caused the riots and the chaos. And here, here Agrippa simply says, uh, we all agree. This man has done nothing to deserve death or even imprisonment. He's been rotting in prison for a couple years, waiting for his case to be adjudicated. Uh, and as Agrippa says, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So there is a verdict about Paul, even though that's really not what Paul is pressing toward. The the verdict is not guilty. But Paul has appealed to Caesar. So Festus has to figure out something. He writes the letter. He sends Paul on. There's a little shipwreck in the middle there. I'm summarizing rather briefly, don't you think? (laughs) Gives Paul more opportunity to preach to the Gentiles on the island of Malta. Uh, That whole shipwreck scene is a wonderful scene. shows the wonderful blending of God's sovereignty and human responsibility because in the midst of the storm that is pushing them further and further south toward toward North Africa and almost certainly it seems is going to lead to uh, the ship sinking in the middle of the Mediterranean, Jesus appears to Paul and says, Calm down. I want you to appear before Caesar, so you're going to get to Rome. Not only that, nobody on this ship is going to die. So he has the sovereign word of Jesus that nobody's going to die. And then, as they're about to come and shipwreck just off the coast of the island of Malta, Paul notices that the sailors are about to bail on them, use a lifeboat and escape. And Paul, for whatever reason, he's not a seaman, although he's given advice on whether to set sail earlier that was ignored. But anyway, uh, Paul, for whatever reason, knows if the sailors leave, it's common sense. They're not going to be able to get that ship close enough though that people will be saved. And he goes to the, to, the, to the guy who's in charge of him, the army officer, and he says, if the sailors leave, people are going to die. Now, that's an interesting point. I'm just taking you there briefly because that's not really where I'm going. But it's an interesting point because if Paul knows by the sovereign revelation of Jesus that nobody's going to die... Why does Paul care about whether the sailors leave or not? Nobody's going to die. It's a beautiful illustration of the biblical truth that God works through secondary means. God has ordained that everybody on that ship is going to survive. 
And God has ordained that everybody on that ship is going to survive by the military making the sailors stay with the ship to the end, which they do. And everybody makes it to the island of Malta. That's a little byway. That's not the main point of this message, but it's just, you know, good reminder to us of the wonderful workings, mysterious workings of the sovereignty of God. Paul gets to Rome, and this is where I want to take us here in these last uh, few verses. I mean, in these last few minutes and the last few verses in chapter 28. Um, when Paul gets to Rome, uh, very interestingly, uh, because I suspect of the report of the uh, army officer who has accompanied Paul, uh, who has borne witness that this accused man who is a Roman citizen is not a flight risk, uh, that he has made sure that everybody, even the prisoners, other prisoners on the ship have uh, arrived safe and sound. Uh, Paul has given permission to rent his own private quarters, as, he, as Luke says in 28.16, was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. With the soldier that guarded him. Uh, we know from other uh, accounts that typically Roman soldiers who were guarded, often chained actually to prisoners, uh, served basically six-hour stints at a time, and then another one would come on. So that's basically four... Uh, no, four-hour stints, I'm sorry. Four-hour stints, so six soldiers in every 24-hour period uh, would be chained to Paul and make sure that Paul doesn't disappear someplace in the city of Rome. Um, uh, rather inhibiting of Paul's uh, movement, or, or was it? <laughs> or, you know, from Paul's point of view, hooray, captive audience. So... Every, uh, every few hours, uh, you know, somebody else to talk about. Isn't it, you know, uh, scholars debate about whether Philippians was written from Caesarea when Paul was in prison there or from Rome. I'm convinced it was written from Rome. And that seems to me to be the best explanation when Paul says in, in Philippians 1, uh, things are going great here. It's like those cards you get on vacation, you know. Everything's beautiful, wish you were here. Paul writes to the Philippians, things are beautiful, wish you were here in prison with me. Things are going great because the word is spread through the whole palace guard that I'm here for the sake of Christ. Now, how do you suppose that word got spread? All those guys who found them some chained to Paul. They went back to the barracks and said, you'll never hear what I, you know. Man, this guy never stops talking. He's always talking about Jesus, you know. And the next guy goes in and you think, oh, man, you know. So, But, you know, also, Philippians 4, as Paul is greeting the church at Philippi, he can also say, among the people that are giving them greeting. Oh, greetings also, by the way, from the people in Caesar's household. So who knows all the webs of connection that Paul exploited uh, as chained to those soldiers. But he also has the freedom to accept guests, even though he can't go preaching all over town. People can come to him. And he wants to meet with the members, the leaders of the Jewish community, and that's what we pick up in verse 17, as they meet with him. He doesn't know what word has gotten to them from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Actually, they haven't heard anything from the Sanhedrin. They know that what he's preaching, everybody, the word is out among the synagogues of the dispersion, that there's something wrong with it, but they don't know exactly what. And so, of course, Paul is ready to step into that one too. Well, let me explain to you what I've been preaching. And uh, at verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they, that is the Jewish leaders in Rome, 
came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning until evening. I get tired after a couple hours in the morning, but Paul has more stamina than I. I love it, but I get a little weary. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Back to the word of God. Back to the word of God. Here is what God has been predicting. The kingdom of God and Jesus is the Lord who came as a servant to suffer and be glorified. Some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved. Typical reaction we find whenever the gospel is preached, whether in a Jewish setting or any other setting. To some, the gospel is the aroma of life to life. To, the other, to others, the aroma of death to death. So they disagreed among themselves and they departed, but Paul gave them one more warning. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Almost an echo of what takes place in Acts 13. In the beginning of Paul's ministry as we hear him preaching, where he gives the warning, don't be a scoffer, don't be one who hardens your heart in unbelief, because God is going to bring his good news to those at the far ends of the earth, To the Gentiles, he will bring salvation and the light of the gospel. Verse 30, And he lived there two whole years at his own expense. Boy, the Romans knew how to handle the prison population, didn't they? Everybody pays their own rent. Well, the non-dangerous prisoners. At his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What happened after the end of the two years? It's another good question to ask when we get to glory. We don't know. Luke does seem to suggest that the two-year period is some kind of a closure period. Some suggest that Luke is writing this at the end of that two-year period, and perhaps Paul's case is about to come up before Caesar. Others suggest that At the end of the two-year period, Paul was executed, and Luke doesn't want to tell us that. I don't think that's really too faithful to what we know of Luke's frank honesty about facing suffering. Others suggest, as I think is probably the case, that at the end of the two-year period, Paul was released. Whether his appeal was heard before Caesar or not, it may be that his accusers never appeared to press their case before the the, uh, court of Caesar. It seems as if some of Paul's letters, uh, especially his his letters to Timothy and Titus, come from a later period of ministry beyond the period of this imprisonment. And uh, so it may well be that Paul was freed and maybe even got to Spain as he had hoped to get to when he wrote Romans. We don't know. But you see, Luke's point is not, I'm writing a biography of Paul. Luke's point is, I'm talking about the victory of the word of Christ. And that's the note on which he leaves us, that Paul is preaching. He's chained to a soldier. He can't leave the house that he's paying rent for. But he's receiving everybody who can come and wants to come. 
And he's preaching the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Second Timothy. I think Paul's last letter. I think from a later imprisonment. It may be from this imprisonment, but it may be from a later imprisonment. In Second Timothy, Paul, unlike Philippians, where when Paul's writing from that imprisonment, Paul is saying, you know, I can't decide whether to pray that the Lord would bring me to himself through having Caesar condemn me to martyrdom or whether I should continue on this earth. I'm pretty, pretty sure that you still need me. So I'm pretty sure that when Jesus makes the decision about the outcome of my appeal, I'm going to stay with you. In 2 Timothy, it's a very different sense that Paul has. This is the book in which he says, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, I'm now being poured out for your faith. And it's also in 2 Timothy that Paul says, I am suffering... 2 Timothy 2.9 Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. That's the point Luke makes, even if he's describing an earlier imprisonment. It doesn't really matter. Paul is physically bound, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God goes forward. It goes forward through the suffering of God's people. It goes forward through the arrest of Jonathan and Margaret Falk and their release and having to return to the States and the suffering of the uh, Eritrean believers who were imprisoned there and suffer for their faith. But the Word of God goes forward. The Word of God goes forward through the martyrdom of the German missionary and the two Turkish believers who are known to and friends of one of our graduates, Fikret Bocek, the pastor in Izmir in Smyrna, as, as Fikret has described in these few months since their being tortured and put to death, how the gospel is advancing and people are actually being attracted now to the church in Izmir. Uh, four have come to faith, Fikret reports, since those martyrdoms were, took place and since the church responded with calm forgiveness toward their persecutors. The word of God is not bound. That's what we need to carry away because Jesus is the one who is preaching his gospel to the ends of the earth through us. And it may involve suffering for us. Maybe not in the intense way that believers elsewhere in the world are facing suffering, but it may involve being scorned or shunned or excluded from promotion or put down in the academic environment of the university. But the Word of God is not bound because Christ, by His sovereign Holy Spirit, is taking that life-giving Word of His giving His life for us on the cross and taking it up again as our Good Shepherd. Taking that Word and driving it home to hard hearts, taking hearts that were dead in sin and turning them into hearts that are living and pulsing with life and love for Him. The Word of God is not bound. Praise the Lord of the Word who proclaims his word to the ends of the earth and calls his people in from earth's wide bounds and ocean's farthest coast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great assurance with which you leave us at the end of this book that whatever became of Paul at the end of those two years of imprisonment, 
the word of God is not bound. And that we hear him at the end in action, testifying to your kingdom and to the Lord Jesus Christ without hindrance and with great boldness. Father, we pray that whatever place you scatter us, whatever place you position us in the army that carries forth the message of the gospel of the triumphant Lord Jesus, that you would give us the joy, confidence, humble dependence upon Jesus that will enable us to be bold and winsome witnesses speaking the truth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came to suffer as the servant and to be glorified in resurrection power that he might shine your light to the Gentiles, to us and to those we know, that he might bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. We pray in his name. Amen.